In End of the Myth, Greg Grandin discusses how the promise of ever-increasing free land was able to form the ideological glue that helped to hold the American capitalist project together. But in the midst of the worldwide economic crisis that was the Great Depression, doubts began to rise about the limitless nature of the frontier. Frederick Jackson Turner had originally conceived his frontier thesis as a sociology of vastness, using it to explain how seemingly infinite free land created a unique, vibrant political equality. It was then amended by politicians into an ideology of limitlessness, used to justify wars as far away as the Philippines. But starting around the second decade of the 20th century, critics began to turn the thesis against itself. Turner and his followers had posited the frontier to account for all the bad things that the United States had managed to avoid. Despotism, militarism, collectivism, class conflict, servility. Now, others started to give the same answer, the frontier. Whenever they asked why the United States couldn't have good things, like social rights, or a government with the capacity to respond to social problems, or a culture that wasn't mawkish. Welcome back to Ending the Myth, the podcast where we spend 25 episodes talking about a book so that you don't have to read it. We do that work, baby. Yeah, we do. And I love that intro, man. Yeah, good thing that that has no application to today. I, no, it, yeah. The past really is a different country. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the United States can't like respond to any social rights or have the okay. capacity to respond to any type of crisis that we might be facing. Could you imagine? D- different could, world, man. Could you Crazy. Even? Our great-grandparents, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what we're here to help you do, is to just try and understand this this foreign land <laughs> in all of its difficult contours. <laughs> I'm Brian, by the way. And I am Munya. And today, we're getting back to the book, baby. Let's go. We're here to discuss Chapter 10 of Greg Grannon's book, The End of the Myth. Chapter 10, it discusses the Great Depression, but I think it's safe to say it's really a vibe check of the 1930s. 100%. You know, <laughs> it is like, you know, front and center, right? With like the Great Depression, the New Deal. Yeah. Look, really, not- it is like vibe checking completely. Yeah. You're not going <laughs> to learn when Roosevelt got elected in Chapter 10 of End of the Myth. All right. No, you're no. not going to hear what Hoover's policy was regarding chickens and pots. All right. But you will learn the vibe (laughs) yes easily (laughs) so last week we filled you all in on the dirty details of the class war that the united states was in during the interwar years but today we wanted to talk about vibes (laughs) (laughs) and to help us with that task we're going to be employing the book fascism and social revolution by r palm dutt to give us a hand with the era 
We will have the first four chapters of the book up on the suggested readings page for those who want to follow along. Now, Brian, what the hell is this book that you made me read? The one that you shipped to me said you got to got to check this book out. I know that we're doing a, you know, a podcast on a different book, but we have to read this book in between. <laughs> what what was the book that I was reading on a long subway ride chapter by chapter? This has uh, been the story of this podcast as B saying, I know we're doing a podcast on this book, but you should really read this book instead. Yeah. <laughs> you should read this other and that's book. Why, instead, that's why we're better. On top of. <laughs> that's, the, that's why we are the best around, folks. Yeah. So Munya was just hanging at his house during the COVID crisis, and he got a knock on the door, and just like an A24 movie trailer, <laughs> a mysterious box was there, and while yeah. a voiceover is like, we have a job for you, as you're like slowly <laughs> opening it, you know? <laughs> And inside was R. Palm Dutt's book, Fascism and Social Revolution, a mm-hmm. book that I am an enormous fan of. But what is it, right? I feel like it's very obscure. It actually has a a kind of reprinting you can get on Amazon these days. I think I have cool. the, you gave me the reprinting. You yeah. Know, it has like a cool little, um, it, it looks like newer. Cover. <laughs> but it's, it's a great book. So, our Palm Dutt is uh, known as, his actual name is Rajani Palm Dutt, which might give some clues to who he is, which he is a man of Indian descent who was born in Great Britain at the beginning of the 20th century. His father was Indian. His mother was Swedish. Uh, Our Palm Dutt, his family were economists and academics, basically. Uh, his great uncle wrote the economic history of India, which, by the way, still gets referenced today, uh, called the Deindustrialization of India, uh, where he talks about how Britain showed up in India and actually didn't advance the country, but uh, British imperialism actually mm-hmm. destroyed the uh, Indian industrial base. Uh, facts, true facts stated. Unfortunately, he wrote it about you know twenty years after Marx died. I think Marx would have loved it, <laughs> um, but. Dutt, he was a member of the British Communist Party, a founding member of the British Communist Party. He was editor of several communist journals. Um, He wrote Fascism and Social Revolution in 1934, trying to explain why fascism took over the European continent and what its sort of political economic base was. He wrote a addition to it in 1935, but essentially, just like me, he wiped his hands again he said that's all the analysis of fascism we need i've perfected it and uh you know what he's not wrong yeah you sh- listener you should read this book uh, it, it genuinely it is such a good book like i was blown away the fact that it was like written in the 1930s i mean it, it shows just like how clear everything kind of was at that time it wasn't like we have the we have the benefit of hindsight to really analyze these things but really i mean it's it felt like i was reading um a text that did have that benefit but it was like you know in the midst this wasn't even you know at the start of world war ii yet when um you know uh dutt's book came out and so um he totally nailed it on all levels and it's still really applicable um today It, it it holds up yeah. The one thing he got wrong, he was like, uh, yes, and the working class will defeat fascism around the yeah. world. This is yeah. the coming of the new revolution. Uh, He's like, if but- fascism does happen, which obviously won't, because the working class will not allow that to happen. We'll, we'll you defeat know? it. We'll, <laughs> we'll just defeat it. Yeah, fascism is taking over in every country, but the working class will defeat it, bringing on the workers' revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, hey, we can't fault somebody for revolutionary optimism, all right? Yeah, you know? I mean, you know. You got to live for something. 
exactly. do you write a book unless you believe something's going to change in the future, right? 100%. But, but yeah, I just thought this book would be interesting because, you know, he's he talks about the United States in it, but he's largely talking about Europe. And this book is also a bit of a vibe check. The chapters that we put up for you guys to check out are all about vibes in, <laughs> in Europe. Yeah, yeah. And I just think it's an interesting counterpoint to Greg Grandin's American vibe check. Yeah. Uh, which Grandin in The End of the Myth, you know, he calls this chapter a psychological twist, right? And again, I mean, this is where we're getting to the point of this is not a, you know, what to, what does the CCC stand for or anything like that chapter, right? This is a chapter about what the fuck is happening psychologically in the United States. And the big thing for Grandin is the frontier is ending. And Munya, I just want to read this quote to you and I want to kind of get yeah, your reaction. Please. So this is from Grandin, and Grandin's talking about Stuart Chase, who's uh, an economist and a member of Roosevelt's Brain Trust, right? And so Grandin says, The realization that our future is not boundless is only now thrusting home, according to Stuart Chase. Quote, There is no escape. We have to fight our economic battles at home. Laissez-faire rides well on covered wagons, not so well on conveyor belts and cement roads. The great reaches of the continent of North America stamped into our fathers the idea that our future was boundless. But the frontier has collapsed, and the country's perpetual motion machine, its constant flight forward that allowed it to psychologically avoid dealing with its contradictions, has stripped its gears. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, said it pretty well. (laughs) And so... This idea that the frontier had collapsed, right? It's it's more than just the idea that we got to California and it's like, oh, there's the ocean. Damn, no more, no more just walking west. Damn yeah, it. Wipe off hands, the job is done. Yeah. Right? You know, American capital itself had seemingly reached the limits of its expansion, mm-hmm. you know, and we can get into the details of this a little bit later, but basically the great depression was an economic crisis that showed the fundamental inability of capital to expand forever. And when it reaches that inability to expand, that inability to stretch into new frontiers. Well, that's when uh, I believe historians talk about, we entered the cool times, the cool zone. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, speaking to this very point of the cool zone, Grandin also quotes this guy, Lewis Mumford, who's sort of a, you know, an important thinker of the 1920s and 30s. And he has this important essay in 1926 called The Golden Day. And again, you know, uh, I'm just curious, you know, Booney, I'd like to hear your take on this here. But, uh, okay. you know, he's talking about Mumford versus this guy named Whale. And he says, Whale hoped that Americans were on the cusp of developing a rational, social democratic political culture rooted in a clear-eyed understanding of class relations. Lewis Mumford didn't think so. Quote, When after the long journey was over and the pioneer came out of the woods, all he could do was respond to social problems in covert pathological ways. With spastic, hysterical, panic prohibitions against cigarettes, for example, alcohol, or even the length of sheets for hotel beds. Yeah, I mean that that sounds that sounds about right. Like basically collapsing in the mind as well, right? And like, you know, freaking out over shit like length of sheets in hotel beds or like pinning various things like cigarettes, um, you know, on the ills of our 
problems which certainly aren't like positive things don't get me wrong but like you know um kind of like taking certain uh, vices or social ills and like you know you like creating this idea that nothing is really like right and this is we have to react really harshly against these specific things you know um basically instead of like looking at it from like systematic ways like within the mind to me it seems like it's like you know, when systematically shit breaks down, um, you know, you can really uh, get into like responding to things through like just like pure hysterics in a lot of ways. And like, as you said, like, you know, like pathological reactions instead of like reactions towards like the structures and systems itself. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing is, is that capitalism structurally, ideologically, etc., it's so dominant and it's so hegemonic in the United States and any capitalist country that when it starts to fail fundamentally, right when it reaches a dead end and can't go anywhere people have to find an explanation for it but the thing is it's so hegemonic the capitalism itself remains completely unquestioned right people don't even think to question it right so what could it be it must be some sort of moral decay that Mm -hmm. can only be you know uh relieved via uh, a, a re you know invigoration of individual moral you know, or individual morals right yeah and if i could yeah. just throw out an example that i'm just making up off the top of my head uh-huh say capitalism were to create a potentially uh all human life ending crisis by i'm gonna go a little sci-fi i love science fiction yeah they yeah. found some way to superheat the fucking planet Oh, wow. In a way that might kill all life on Earth, right? And instead of reacting in a rational way of saying, oh, we should stop that immediately. We know all the elements of it. We should stop it immediately. You just tell people, you know, convert to paper straws. Mm hmm. You know? Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then also, like, you know, if you don't have, uh, if it's 2005, um, you know, oh, you should be driving a hybrid uh, car instead <laughs> of a, you know, like gas powered car. Or, oh, you should be like uh, recycling. How come you are not recycling? How come you're choosing to, uh, like, you shouldn't be flying, like, because that's actually <laughs> polluting. That's polluting if you fly your carbon footprint. Uh, yeah. That's, that's bad. You know, littering is bad. <laughs> when when you go from Seattle to New York, you should take a seventy two hour train journey over uh, completely unmaintained tracks <laughs> using the zero hours of vacation time you're given in America. Yes, uh, yeah. you know for the trip. Oh, by the way, it also costs seven times more than it <laughs> costs to fly. Um, these are the kind of things you come to when actually discussing capitalism critically is off the table right and it's it's interesting because the crisis of the 1930s was as much a real structural crisis of capitalism as it was a psychological crisis created by that structural collapse right and grandin i think he's really good at pointing to writers at the time who are basically just coming out and saying it like hey look everybody's going crazy (laughs) This is why. Very similar, by the way, to the 1830s when he had, you know, people in the U.S. who were desperate to expand, where essentially they were waiting for Jacksonianism to come in and essentially Mm -hmm. grant them the right to, you know, finally move unabated west. Uh, You know, everyone's having that breakdown where they're just like, you know, 
the, this is the West is America's asylum. We, we like we're all losing our fucking minds. You know? Uh, you know, I think it was like the number one reason where pe- people were getting thrown in asylums in the 1830s was that they were uh, disappointed in business or whatever. Um, yeah. We're, but we're seeing a very similar reaction in the 1930s. And Granin even points to the fact that New Dealers, they try and recapture it, right? And try and judo redirect this energy by, you know, when talking about like electrification in the, you know, in rural areas being like, that's a new frontier. We're doing a new frontier. <laughs> <laughs> they try and grab that frontier imagery and like judo use it for their own, you know, purposes. Like Trojan and horse it almost, right? Yeah, yeah, to like reinvigorate the frontier myth that Grandin is talking about via, um, you know, essentially uh, <laughs> uh, political trickery and chicanery with language. <laughs> but next frontier uh, actually is uh, stuff that's good for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, here's the thing that we probably have to do. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's the frontier actually now. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> The fact that the two aren't connected in any real way doesn't make yeah. a ton of sense because all you're trying to do is build emotional connection between mm-hmm. them, right? Because you have a country that you think is, you know, about to like go wilding out any moment. You're yeah. trying to contain it, right? Yeah, uh, right. So there's this, you know, emotional, psychological response that's having to this crisis, which I guess then it's worth discussing the crisis itself. And so what's happening is there's having a crisis of overproduction, or as we discussed last week, uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, described a crisis of underconsumption. Uh, yeah. But this is a classic, uh, this is a classic Marxism here, <laughs> the crisis of overproduction. <laughs> Munya, you maybe want to give us a, a little explanation as our, as our finance wizard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, so the crisis of overproduction under capitalism really is about um, the basic idea and ideology of like, you know, supply and demand where commodities are produced like that can be like profitably like sold. That is just like when you're kind of at uh, equilibrium in production. But when let's say like you're producing too much of something as far as capitalism is concerned, it is too much, then the price will be uh, driven down lower than like what you can sell it for which then because under private enterprise and under capitalism you need to um, extract surplus value at all costs so there has to be a price floor where the price that you sell your goods at is more than what you actually pay to produce them basic rules of supply and demand if you have a lot of supply if you produce too much as far as capitalism is concerned of something then the price because there's a lot of it that means that the value because there's less scarcity the price will go down because there's just, you know, if Peter doesn't have it, Paul has it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there it's plentiful. It's all around. Um, in theory, you would think that if you have more foods, more yields, uh, that feeds the population, um, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> but uh, that's just not really how it works uh, under capitalism. And so like Marx really saw it's a capitalist crisis of overproduction. It's not real, and and it turns into a crisis to the people because what capitalism is forced to do artificially um, reduce the supply, which means that you cannot have um, a really large yield on things. So if you have over like if you have millions and millions of bales of wheat that 
is driving the price down, right? Like you need the price to be above $8. And right now it's at $3. Uh, that requires to get that price up, you have to either do like two things. One, people have to demand it less. That's not happening. People need to eat. Or um, you need to supply less of it, which means burning down a lot of stuff and like basically deindustrializing um, to the point where, you know, your crop is no longer, um, you know, like prevalent. And I'm using crops as an example, but this is a, this is a, you know, a theory that it can be applied to, you know, anything that is a commodity and that's produced and sold, um, you know, on commodities markets and stuff. So it is a capitalist crisis of overproduction where if you do produce too much of something, there's no money to be made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the listener might be thinking, uh, well, why don't I just produce less? Right. And Marx's sort of key insight here, right, is that capitalists are driven to overproduce, you know, they have the reason- to. Yeah, and the reason is, yeah, is that capital always has to expand, right? It has to expand because capital takes on debts for the future. Those debts can only be paid through future expansion. Uh, in the case of, you know, a sort of market like, you know, take automobiles, right? Say you have a market in which there really is room to only sell a million automobiles and you have two car companies making all of the cars, right? If those car companies don't essentially form a monopoly by just working together, Right. What will end up happening is, you know, they're expending a lot of money to build the cars. Right. A lot of expensive equipment and things like that. They intend to re get or get that money back through the expansion of market share. So car company A and car company B, they're not going to just both agree. Well, there's only one million cars to be sold. So we'll each make five hundred thousand. Yeah. Car company A makes 700,000 cars. Car company B makes 700,000 cars. And then they just fight each other to sell them, you know? And you end up with car graveyards, which you can actually find all over the United States, by the way, at this point. Uh, or, I don't know, going to Eastern Washington, Boeing has a giant plane graveyard you can look at. But the point is, is that the very forces of competition in capital itself, uh, the fact that money that is placed into fixed capital meaning machine tools and stuff like that has to be recouped and preferably at a profit all those forces push capital to constantly look for market expansion you know and that supply and demand curve that Mooney is talking about it really can only be stable in a state of market expansion once those markets close down and there's nowhere to go anymore that's when shit starts to get really wild right capital's response its irrational response is to essentially just begin destroying the sites of production itself right right now because well yeah and just like for listeners just like because imagine and the reason why it works in expansion is because you know the inherent uh drive of capitalism and capitalist production is to just like produce uh more within competition and so the reason why it still works uh under like expanding markets is that you know if you're not reaching everyone in the US, for instance, like if there's some people that are not served or that, you know, there's always more, it's essentially like, you know, the people who are buying, like the total people who are interested in buying might be like, like, let's say 10,000 people today, but you project that 20,000 people next year are going to be buying it, right? And so then your production actually makes sense, because like, there's more people that are buying your excess. But then if it stays at 10,000 people, so instead of you saying like, oh, next year, we're going to double the number of people who want our stuff, it's still the same amount of people. Um, and But you're producing 
still, that's not going to stop you from producing that much. And so that that's mm-hmm. that's why it actually thrives in like growing markets and mm-hmm. like you know expanding frontiers and under expansion. But when you hit the wall, which is what we're talking about, like the frontier itself closing, right? There's no more land to go. There's no more people to actually you know um, serve in that sense. Like it, the jig is kind of up in terms of mm-hmm. growth and markets. That's when you start seeing like prices decline, and you have to because you'll just keep expanding at the same rate uh, for production without the actual market expanding itself. I just wanted to, mm-hmm. I just wanted to kind of expand on that because that could be yeah. confusing. No, no, that's good. And, and the thing is, is that once they can no longer sell the item at a profit, as you were discussing, instead of uh, continuing to produce it, they just shutter the factory, right? Or they shutter the farm or whatever, right? Yep. Now, what's happening in the 1930s and what we've been discussing leading up to this, you know, since we start talking about the progressive era, is domestic markets are largely saturated and the ability of capital to expand from the imperialist core is depending almost entirely on imperialism, right? The search for new markets abroad. That's what imperialism is basically is like to expand your markets. Yeah. But unfortunately starting around, you know, the beginning of the 20th century, uh, it turns out the world only has finite places to go and the international sort of imperial periphery was fully divided between the various imperial powers. Now, they did a redivision with World War One, but it didn't actually fundamentally solve the problem, right? So when we talk about the frontier closing, it's not just the free land that the U.S. was giving away in the 19th century. It's the fact that the free markets, right? The, and by free markets, I mean the ability to just go in and dominate a market as an imperial power that's off the table too. Now every market you win has to be won against another imperialist, right? So you yeah. have to go go in either uh, economic or armed struggle against them. Uh, if you are a history buff and we're talking about the 1930s, I think you can guess where the <laughs> what what version of struggle this <laughs> is going to end in. <laughs> but the thing is, is that when this happens, it causes a inherent crisis in capitalism. It causes a collapse of markets both domestic and internationally it throws people out on the street into unemployment all these kind of things and most importantly it exposes the irrationality of or you know capitalist social organization generally and to give an idea munio me and you were talking about this you know prior to recording Uh, Mm -hmm. the agricultural crisis in America that essentially sets this all off, right? Which we talked last week, we had this great quote from Grandin about how in America, because there was always free land to the West, that American farmers would basically, instead of farming the soil, would simply strip mine it, right? Yeah. And what that that means is if you haven't ever been around farmers, is when you grow a crop, that crop pulls nutrients and such out of the soil. The more intensely you farm the same patch of land – the more nutrients you pull out of the soil without replenishing them, that soil turns to trash, right? Like it can no longer support growing. Like your yields are going to start decreasing, right? As your yields decrease, eventually you won't be able to even grow on it at all. And the problem is for a farmer is that farming is a very debt heavy industry, right? You're taking on a lot of debt at the beginning of the season and hoping to pay it off at the end of the season. And so you take on debt to buy seed, you take on debt to buy fertilizer, 
by the 1930s, 20s and 30s, they're buying, you know, mechanized farm equipment and things like that. All this stuff is very expensive, right? You're taking loans out to buy them. And then all of a sudden your soil, which you've been abusing for years, stops producing like it used to, right? You know, your crop isn't what you thought it would be. You're not able to make the money you thought you'd make at the end of the season. So what do you do? Well, now you're in, you can't pay off your debts. You do what gamblers always do. You roll it over, right? Mm -hmm. I'll make it back next season. I'll borrow more. I'll somehow pay it back. Because now you're under the gun, you're even more intensely farming that already bad soil, right? Essentially, you're driving the train off the fucking cliff, right? Yeah. And this is literally happening in the United States all through the 1920s. And by 1931, that quantitative destruction of America's, you know, agricultural land uh, hits a qualitative shift that we come to call the Dust Bowl, where the soil becomes so bad that it's not even growing grass or anything on it. Winds come off, you know, the plains, and it literally just blows the soil away. That's right? so crazy. Yeah, a literal ecological disaster yeah. is happening. And also <clears throat> commodities, like, for instance, um, well, I guess crops that are turned into commodities, like, you know, they're uh, different in how they interact with soil. Like, there's some commodities mm-hmm. that are really, really bad for soil, like tobacco, for instance, yes. is extremely <laughs> harmful yeah. to uh, your soil, right? You have to rotate those out a lot. And, like, so imagine with any plant, it's going to exploit the soil in some way and like damage it. But like some are even like more, uh, some are even more harmful than others. And uh, imagine basically doubling down on tobacco Mm -hmm. yields, not really doing that well and trying to exploit that same soil, which is basically the reason why it is depleting in a lot of ways is because that soil is just uh, so bad, right? From over exploiting it. And it's perfect that you bring up tobacco because it tends to be the biggest cash crops are the ones that destroy the land the most. And again, because we're in this you know, sort of debtors sort of fallacy or gamblers fallacy with farmers. OK, I got to get this debt paid off. I need more. I, you know, I need an even bigger haul. Right. We're all doing Adam Sandler right now. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the six way parlay. Gyms. Yeah. Yeah. And so what they do is they're leaning even heavily, even heavier on planting those those cash crops like tobacco, which is just further annihilating the soil. By the way, I mean, this is apropos of nothing, obviously. Corn, very bad for the soil. Mm. Uh, you know, just something to think about, you know. <laughs> but the <laughs> point being is that this all comes to a head. About 1931, the soil blows off and American agriculture hits a extremely severe ecological crisis, all right? And capital's response to this is that because all these farmers are debtors, is to send the banks in to take their farms, right? But who the fuck are you going to sell a farm to that can't grow <laughs> anything? And that, like, literally, if you went out to look at it, you could just watch it blow away. <laughs> like, <laughs> like your farm has, there's Bye. even less farm every second, you know? <laughs> right? And so... 
this creates a crisis in rural banking where they, you know, because the banks, like the farmers, are also over leveraged. And as more farms collapse, the banks become more desperate to collect on somebody, of course, then forcing even more farms to collapse. It starts to snowball. Of course, rural banks are attached to urban banks. They causes the urban banks to collapse and you get the Great Depression, basically. I mean, yep. this is this is where you get to the real height years, 32, 33 of the Great Depression. What you see with irrationally irrationality of capitalism is here is a critical industry because I don't know about you, the listener, but I require food to live. (laughs) (laughs) This is a critical industry that you have to have functioning in capitalism because it can't turn a profit is just actively destroying that industry, right? Like wiping it, literally wiping it off the earth, essentially. (laughs) Um, And what ends up happening is even more interesting after that, which is under the new deal, they try and put forward agricultural policies that will not destroy the soil. They essentially put in curbs to the market. I mean, this is what farm subsidies are. They essentially come in and they say, look, if you don't, if you don't engage in the market as if it were a free market, right? If you just take money from us to do what we tell you to, we can replenish the soil and bring back American agriculture, which they successfully did over the 1930s. But again, that little nose of capitalism, it sticks, it sticks itself into everywhere. One of the ways that they were able to replenish American agriculture was through the uh, Agricultural Adjustment Administration, where they were literally paying farmers to destroy crops, right? Paying farmers to kill livestock, things like that. Like slaughtering cows, slaughtering pigs, like literally just like slaughtering them and then disposing of their bodies, right? Like not yeah. like turning that into yeah. not, not slaughtering them for bacon, slaughtering no. them and then dumping them in mass graves. Yeah. And the thing is, is that this to understand the grotesque nature of this, you have to understand people in the United States in the 1930s, where you have 33 percent unemployment, people are literally starving to death. Like, yeah. All those horror stories you get when you read uh, The Grapes of Wrath in high school are true and worse. And, you know, I, I was telling you this story off mic, but it was a good story, so I'll tell it again. Yeah. When uh, I was in high school, in my high school history class, we watched the movie the Grapes of Wrath, a fantastic adaptation. And at one point, uh, when they're going to the Pickers camp in California, it does like a pan through the shack town, right? to get to where the jodes are and as it's panning through to show you the the, the sort of hooverville or whatever uh my history teacher pauses the video and he's like you know what's inaccurate about this depiction of you know this hooverville and of course all of us good students are trying to like restraining our eyes trying to remember like was there a car that shouldn't have been there was there uh you know like you know, like a, a 1941 ford is in there as opposed <laughs> yeah, to yeah. A, a 31 <laughs> or whatever right you know you know trying to figure it out right people are throwing out things like you know there was a car that wasn't supposed to be there a, a plane that wasn't supposed to be that flew overhead or something that's in the background that, that top is from and, zara that's yeah, an basically, H&M top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's dressed in urban outfitters. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was so funny. The history teacher just stops us and he goes, you really think in a shack town like that where everybody's starving that that dog would just be hanging out walking down the pathway? The oh. It's like, that dog is stew, buddy. Like, right. It's like, if people are starving, that dog is stew. <laughs> and, you know, that was real. I mean, people were literally fucking starving. And 
in order to fix the agricultural market, which was the actual like function of agricultural policy in the United States, they were destroying crops, right? And, you know, Dutt cites this specifically, but I think it was he cites it because it was, it was a scandal in the 30s to find this out, that people are starving and, and the government's literally paying to destroy food, you know? It's uh, crazy. It's crazy to think about. Like, it, it makes zero sense when viewed in, like, this is more of like the human and social realm of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like the rationality of destroying food while people are starving, just it, it, it doesn't make sense. But then when you put like capitalist logic to it, right? And like mm-hmm. think of it from like the capitalist perspective and like the actual maintaining of markets, which as we go on with this series is kind of like the root of you know, a lot of the progressive era is like facilitating and like stabilizing um, markets in the United States, right? Um mm-hmm. And this is one of them. When you want to stabilize a market, that inevitably then leads to doing wildly different things than if you care about, let's say, if people actually do eat, right? It's like first people have to make money and then people can eat. Yeah. And I'm sure as people did, you could go to a guy like Henry Wallace, who we'll talk about more in a future episode, who was overseeing you know, US agricultural policy and who, to his credit, did essentially solve a major ecological disaster in the United States. But if you'd ask about things like, why are you destroying crops and stuff? You know, the response would probably be, well, if we didn't, prices would collapse and the farmers wouldn't grow them. Right. You know, because yeah. the cost of growing the crop, growing the corn or whatever would exceed what they could, you know, sell it for in the market. So therefore we have to make sure that price, we have to keep prices artificially high by destroying the crops, right? And incentivize and, the farmers to actually make it. Like that is yeah. the cap- the capitalist logic of it, right? And that's what you'll hear. That's what you'll hear in like if you take an economics class. Like you'll hear deadpan the professors straight up just like say that like that is just how it that's how it works. And like you know that's actually the most rational way to go about it is because you know everyone runs on incentives. You need to incentivize them to make it, and that's the only way it gets made is if they just. Mm-hmm feel like they just want to do it or not like that's they hold that much power in them in their minds and so you know if you are not one of these dead-eyed economists or something like that and you live in the 1930s if you're just a person who likes to uh, be alive and eat it requires food to do that and you hear about this this is causing some pretty major cognitive dissonance in your head about how the world works right now, you know, what ends up ultimately happening is you get these sort of manias in the 1930s as people are trying to square, you know, the world as they see it with the world as they were always told how it functioned and how it should be. Right. And what you get is actually a crisis of liberalism. Yep. Right. You know. In the United States, right, this means a crisis of markets, right? They are now behaving in ways that people cannot explain rationally in their own minds. But you also get a crisis in the idea of success is based off of merit. Success is based off of obedience. If you play the game, yeah, you will get ahead. Yeah, essentially, which, what you- which is but like which is to be very explicit, like what like a core tenets of liberalism. When we say liberalism, like that yeah. is what we mean it's like this like it's this like social as much as it is like um a core part of like the economic base and like an ideological structure of capitalism it's also a 
you know, a social formation too on like, you know, how to actually interpret the world and the liberal idea and the liberalism and uh, as you like kind of frame it and view it through that world is an idea of meritocracy is an idea of like, you know, free choice is an idea of freedom in and of itself. Mm-hmm. All, all of, all of those things are like liberalism and liberal ideas, but to put that in the social realm has a contradiction between what it actually means in like uh, the context of capitalism, right? Cause freedom mm-hmm. means also free markets. It also means, you know, freedom to, Prosper in you know antebellum period it meant the freedom to own private property and to own slaves and yep. like you know so liberalism is also the freedom to own and exploit people's labor you know like that's the yeah. freedom idea is like really applied you know loosely and that's well not loosely but it's, it's applied in every facade of uh life yeah and to quote one of my uh, goofiest history professors in college uh when I say liberal or liberalism, I don't mean like Ted Kennedy is a liberal uh, reference old, even at the time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, we're not talking about how it's referenced on Fox News or MSNBC. What we mean is the term classical liberalism, right? The idea of individual property rights, right? Holding sway above everything else. Mm-hmm. Now, the you know professional class, when it was selling its sort of middle class revolution in the progressive era, it was able to sell people on the idea, the middle class value of individual advancement through meritocracy, right? And so long as that idea held sway, then you would believe in the protection of individual rights over social rights, right? Right, because individual when we talk property. about individualism a lot, like individualism and liberalism are really kind of coincide. And honestly, like yeah. a lot of people, when Same they say old. individualism, really mean liberalism mm-hmm. uh, when we talk about it that way. Yeah, and liberalism cuts out, by definition, it cuts out the concept of social rights, of collective struggle, etc., right? And the problem is, is that people are now, because you're stuck in this blind alley of economic crisis, they're looking at it, and they're rightfully coming to the conclusion that there doesn't seem to be an individualist way out of this problem. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You know, and so... Liberalism has basically failed, right? It's lo- it's losing legitimacy. Again, you know, uh, this might sound familiar to people alive today, but <laughs> liberalism <laughs> is losing legitimacy. And the thing is, something has to come in and it has to fill that void. And the problem is, is that there is no guarantee of what will fill that void. Uh, not everybody is just going to go down to the corner store, pick up a copy of Capital Volume 1, and say aha we're in a crisis of our production my friends yeah <laughs> have, have you seen this have you seen this chapter here? damn this guy low-key <laughs> you know? snapped yeah you know i mean uh, i don't even think uh volume three would have even been popularly available at the time so you couldn't even go like look there's a tendency of the rate of profit to fall <laughs> on the street corner <laughs> have you heard the news have you heard the yeah. news under capitalism the rate of profit will fall over time <laughs> causing a crisis if it cannot expand you know um so people are looking for some sort of answer and you know this is where i think that dot his his vibe check on europe is good because uh, let's just say that in Europe they find some uh, some answers to be yeah. sure. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> to be sure. <laughs> and you know he, so I, I'm just gonna read this quote. He kind of comes up with this concept that uh, he calls uh, the revolt against the machine, right? And I think the way to see this is that 
as liberalism fails, people are going to, they want to push back, right? But they're going to push back superficially against everything that's around them, right? You know, against the idea of maybe technological progress, against the idea of democracy, right? And all these kind of things, Mm -hmm. right? Liberal institutions certainly are going to fall. Everything that is like existing within the superstructure of capitalism is kind of like where you can, um, you know, react to. Yeah, because you gotta you gotta put the blame somewhere, right? And yep. so Dutt says, the more and more conscious reactionary role of modern capitalism, uh, and the growing ideological revolt against the machine and sense of antagonism to the development of technique, necessarily expresses itself on a wide front in the entire ideological field. A transformation in the dominant trends of capitalist ideology becomes more and more conspicuous. The transformation expresses itself in the growing revolt against science, against reason, against cultural development, against all the traditional philosophical liberal conceptions which were characteristic of ascendant capitalism, in favor of religion, idealist illusions, denial of the validity of science, mysticism, spiritualism, multiplying forms of superstition, cults of the primitive, cults of violence, racial charlatanry as in blood and Aryan nonsense, and all forms of obscurantism. And so basically in the collapse of sort of liberalism's legitimacy, right, is all the things that sort of capitalism was able to mobilize as social goods in the past, which was like, yeah, the power of science to refine industrial technique. People are going to revolt against that, you know, (laughs) and grab against it. And again, this is people who are out searching for an answer. And, you know, as uh, Lenin was always very fond of telling people, you know, nobody ever spontaneously comes up with a perfect analysis of society. It's something that you have to work at, you have to refine and you have to, you have to come to via study and struggle. And so what happens when you have a crisis like this and people are left to come up with this analysis on their own? Well, you know, various forces, step into the void <laughs> and and uh Munya, maybe you could read this next quote from dot which i think you know is going to kind of expands on this idea a little definitely the revolt against science which bourgeois society today encourages in the ideological sphere at the same time it utilizes science in practice is not only the expression of a dying and doomed social class it is an essential part of the campaign of reaction this is the basis which helps to prepare the ground for all the crackeries, the charlatanries of chauvinism, racial theories, anti-Semitism, Aryan grandmothers, mystic swastikas, divine missions, strongman saviors, and all the rest of the nonsense through which alone capitalism today can try to maintain its hold a little longer. Yeah, and I think in that quote, he points to some very key things, right? So <clears throat> fascism in Europe has a very surface level appearance, and then it has a deeper essence, right? And that surface level appearance is the quackeries and charlatanries that mm-hmm. is talking about of Aryan grandmothers and mystic swastikas. <laughs> right? You know, I, I think he's right in having like a, uh, this is a based post uh, posters response to this, right? Yeah, yeah, and, right. And people see that and they say, oh, well, this is just people who have uh, lost their minds. And, you know, modern libs today might say they just didn't believe enough in science, right? Yeah, right. And But Dutt very astutely points at the very beginning. He's like, oh, 
no, the 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 revolt against science that's just for the ideological sphere. Like right. in production, like they will still be trying to advance the technique of production because capitalism, no matter what you want to believe or do or whoever's in charge always has to try and make the product cheaper next year right and you can only do that through the continual application of technology and technique right and so he's saying it's like the mysticism is largely for the rubes it's to try and create a explanation like a world view that makes sense in the chaotic situation that is capitalism and crisis and so we have this surface level understanding of, say, the Nazi Germany that is obsessed with the fact that uh, Himmler liked to dress up like a knight and play fucking, you know, Lord of the Rings and like castles <laughs> with his friends. Right. You know, uh, that's obsessed with the idea of, you know, like groups like the ancient tool society and stuff like that, you know, the, and like the weird mysticism. But underlying all that, what's actually driving this is capital's desperate attempts to reassert its power against the working class, right? You know, in the face of collapsing profits. And also to, and this is important, and this is where I think Dutt's position as somebody who's Indian really plays off. Capital's need to reassert its power internationally vis-a-vis other imperial powers. And in its ability to do that, it's got to sell them something about this mission that isn't just look widgets cost less today than they did last week so sorry you just don't get to eat (laughs) (laughs) doesn't really fly yeah it's not the best explanation you generally want to come up with something better so why not give them Aryan grandmothers mystic swastikas divine missions etc yeah it's it's a it's a instrument of control so to give a more modern example of how this actually um of how this phenomena plays out, uh, look at the modern uh, evangelical church in the United States. Their formation was specifically uh, designed to explain the Cold War, you know, explain like why we are in these situations today in a way that sidesteps the actual material reality of it. It was there's a mm-hmm. whole industry, and then more so, you know, today, just to really just explain why your life might be shit and to direct that energy towards something that isn't the actual economic base that is like driving it. Right. And like, you know, how you know, capital is forming. So it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, well, you know, to get to heaven, actually Jesus is telling you to work hard and like, you know, uh, yeah. you know, well, uh, and like good things would come to you if you do <laughs> like, yeah, and, continue and to really, work at it. <laughs> if people are interested in kind of how this works in the American context, just go back to our Christmas episode where we talked about, you know, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, you know, within the American right. And we talk about exactly what Munoz is talking about here, which is, you know, it was not a coincidence that in the 1950s and 60s when the evangelical church was rising in the U.S. that it was riddled with John Birch Society members, yep. right? The John Birch Society itself, an organization that was created to create, by the way, an organization created by CEOs of major manufacturers <laughs> who are basically like, what's an ideology we can sell to rubes that explains why uh, we're against unions and against any sort of social rights or collective, you know, projects, yeah. <laughs> right? And like, and they came up with a hilarious, you know, cons- you know, international communist conspiracy, right? And then, right. Of course, the co- uh, the, the schneveling Jew, the cabal. Yeah. Uh, the international Jew, et cetera. 
and seeing the limits of the ability to sell it in the guise they were selling it, they moved it to the evangelical church, and now it is the official religion of American society and American imperialism, right? I mm-hmm. mean, uh, finally sanctified by George W. Bush and, you know, his war, his holy war against Iraq, right? And the capitalist class, it's constantly searching both Sometimes this is happening behind the capitalist class back, meaning that they're they're searching for these ideologies, but not consciously. But a lot of times it's happening extremely consciously as well, right? Yeah. They're trying to find a worldview to sell you that an explanation for why they should be in charge and why your life chances should be declining and why that's okay. Yeah. And I, I do want to just like, because we are just discussing this, I, I want to just kind of make clear both to our listeners is that like me and Brian, as well as everyone else in the United States are not immune to this at all. You know, this is like, whenever you think, I think you see the engagement of culture war, I would go as far to say as that that culture war is something that is like, deliberately manufactured by, um, you know, these forces and by uh, the rich and by the owners of capital, right? Because the reason why it feels like our political climate is so intense, of course, one is because we're in a crisis of capitalism, right? But the reactions that are being directed, it's a lot of archetypes and characters and people who, you know, we should blame. Mm-hmm. And frankly, that includes, you know, talking about individual people in the United States who are like anti-maskers, right? Real things that do happen, like right? people who like are kind of skeptical of the vaccine, right? Those mm-hmm. are the problems. On the other side, like uh, illegal immigration, right? Uh, mm. People who, should, who aren't insured should just die, right? Like, you know, all of those things. And then, like, we're not even, like, talking about, like, you know, like, religion. Like, let's ban all Muslims from the country, you know? Yeah. Like, um, all of those ideas are actually revolve around basically directing the actual pressure. Because what we're feeling is pressure from material forces. It's direct to direct it basically, you know, within the ether of of culture within the ether of um social morals and individual morals that we hold up theory Uh, race (laughs) theory especially all of those things are uh, are a part of this project to basically divert blame away from capitalism itself and direct it into the social sphere and i think that once you kind of see um whether you're watching the news or whether you're you know at thanksgiving with your family right and there's these conversations brought up it is basically showing the success of that propaganda working right you're mm-hmm. actually seeing the results of propaganda putting these legitimate um you know grievances of one's life in some cases are like at least perceived in their case just because uh you know the rate of profit is declining uh you know there's not new markets to expand therefore you know people's lives ultimately get worse over time which is the idea of frontier closing now when you see those conversations go up they're not talking about capitalism, right? And that's by design. That's not an accident. That's not just because yeah. of, you know, just the foundations of America. That's just who we are. It's a genuine project and you're seeing that success in real time. And, the, and you know, like maybe I could speak for myself. Like I'm not immune to that either, right? No one is immune mm-hmm. to propaganda. And I'm sure you as a listener, you're not either. So I think that's like a good thing to even like reflect on in a lot of ways. And uh, it changed For me, it changed perspective when you kind of, identify something like that happening and understand where it's coming from yeah maybe propaganda affects munya or maybe it affects you munya but couldn't be me 
Yeah, yeah. R.I.P. <laughs> to you, uh, but I'm different. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm just built different. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess so, man. <laughs> when I receive the propaganda, I just say no. Um, no, thank you. No, thank no, you, thank sir. No, thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, you know, there's no sure way to know that you've been fully propagandized than to think that you haven't. Yeah. Um, but, but the reality is, this, you know, what Munia's talking about there is a perfect explanation of what Grandin's been talking about all along, which is capitalism needs a safety valve to explain away all of its deficiencies. Yep. And as, you know, markets close, as frontiers close, right, that safety valve becomes purely ideological, right? Now, the thing is, is because of the individualistic nature of capitalism and things like that, that ideological safety valve you're going to be given is, you know, to fight a uh, holy war <laughs> against <laughs> the other schmuck sitting next to you on the assembly line, <laughs> right? Yeah, because, yeah. <laughs> you know, he doesn't listen to the the right music or whatever, doesn't, yeah, doesn't, yeah. doesn't say the right words or something, right? Uh-huh. And all this is very fitting for capital because the actual underlying assumptions of the society itself and how it's organized are not being questioned in any serious way. Right. I'm just now, mad at a Joe Rogan listener. Yeah. Yeah. Being mad at Joe Rogan is the absolute height of all of this, right? Which yeah. is that like as much as he's as much as he sucks, as much as uh it sucks that he has the pull that he has and things like that. And he shouldn't uh, have it. I totally should, agree. It's yeah, stupid. Is if it wasn't Joe Rogan, it would be somebody else. And that's because at the heart, it is capital. And the, th- the thing is, is that you actually have to organize against it. There's no sh- yeah. there's no quick shortcut. There's no nope. if we just got you Joe Rogan you off can't, of YouTube like, just or whatever. Cancel Joe Rogan off of YouTube, then like things will be solved. There's right. it's del- things are dry. There, there's a reason why Joe Rogan is number one. It's not just because of like just people's choice. Remember, we don't have much choice in this society, whether you think yeah. so or not. That's like yeah. one of the big myths of the U.S. We, is that we have choice and everything is on top because people just like it. That's yeah. not the case. The only choice you have in America is who's going to be Nickelodeon's most valuable player <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. during the NFL playoffs. And I'm glad that people chose Dak Prescott. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Dude, those those awards are fire. I want I want an orange rocks. Nickelodeon Kids Choice Award. Get slimed. According to Mitch Trubisky, who won it last year after losing his playoff game, uh, it just shows up in the mail randomly too, which is the, That's the coolest so way to read funny. it. Yeah, get an award, just an unmarked box that you open the up. The loose unmarked box is like yeah. <laughs> with the slightly damaged, like orange blimp <laughs> of yeah. the Nickelodeon award. <laughs> but yeah, I mean to to you know to speak to your point about you know Joe Rogan and getting him off the air. I mean uh Kamala Harris successfully campaigned to get Donald Trump kicked off of Twitter. I think we can all agree it was mm-hmm. the efforts of the world's least charismatic person politician <laughs> that did it. But you know did Donald Trump leaving Twitter did it improve the situation on Twitter? Absolutely not. Like, no, it's still the cesspool it always was. Um, you know, it didn't even really hurt Donald Trump's influence. So it just yeah. made him mad. It's like all you, and that's all you can do at this point: just make people mad. You yeah, know? That, that that that's what we're basically given is yeah. how can we make other people mad? Somebody I don't like mad. It'll change yeah. nothing fundamentally about my life, about society, about what created that person in the first place. Meaning that mm-hmm. they'll just be filled by another fucking person who's just like them. Um, you know, nothing changes. Now, mm-hmm. 
in looking at the situation in Europe too, I I think one of the interesting things that Dutt dissects, and I think I kind of want to get into a little bit of this, and then we'll talk about maybe what was different between the U.S. and Europe in the 1930s, is this role that the Social Democrats play in the 1920s and 1930s in continental Europe, although he talks about England as well. But I'll read this quote real fast. He refers to the Social Democrats as capitalism's secret weapon. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Huh? Tell me more. (laughs) So here's the quote. The advance of the workers to the struggle for power, the immediate onrush of which after the war was too powerful to be successfully defeated in direct battle, was circumvented by a strategical ruse. The placing of social democratic governments, presidents, and ministers in office, thus appearing to surrender to the workers the seats of power while the realities of power remained with capitalism. Only in this way, by the alliance with social democracy, by hiding capitalism under a social democratic front, was the capitalist state able to uh, was the capitalist state saved after the war a great show of concessions to the workers was made promises were lavishly broadcast socialization commissions nationalization commissions sankey commissions were set up wages were increased and hours shortened subsequently as soon as the power of capitalism was thus successfully reestablished a reverse action took place the concessions were withdrawn inflation wiped them out in the european countries the capitalist offensive drove back the workers even below pre-war levels. The social democrats, while still occasionally used as governments, were increasingly relegated to the role of opposition. And so he makes this sort of interesting point, right, which is going into the 20s, essentially the social democratic parties were given the reins of political offices, but were never actually given any real power to change the society beneath them. Right? <laughs> like, like they were never going to be allowed to change the fundamental structure of, say, German society. And with Germany, it's and, especially- and sorry, just to be clear, that's that's just because of just how their parliamentary system is like set up. There, there yeah. will be some interventions if they try to like say, "Oh, we're going to do socialism now." Well, he's basically arguing you can't fundamentally redistribute the means of production in a capitalist society via parliamentary procedure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. like you're just simply not going to be allowed to do that. And right. that the actual power of society is always held by those who hold what Marx referred to as social power, which is money. Yeah. You know, uh, the ability to put money into play in order to move pieces across the sort of chessboard is what is going to allow you to hold power. And that basically what ends up happening is these social democratic parties, and this is what, you know, uh, Dutt will talk about at length when he talks about each one of these countries individually, is they're given the task of overseeing the collapse of all these economies, right? (laughs) Like, as the economic crisis grows worse and worse, it is the job of the social democrats to essentially oversee that, carry out austerity programs, make promises that they ultimately will break about, you know, oh, we're going to, you know, uh, do this or that for the working class. And essentially, in doing this, the capitalist class avoids all blame for the crisis that then gets heaped politically (laughs) upon the social democrats, which is... Which, when we say social democrats, too, is like that applies even though there's a huge difference between social democrats and uh the broader anti-capitalist left right like there's a difference between social democrats and socialists especially communists right like you know well i think in this case i mean dutt is he is condemning a lot of socialist groups in this crowd too i mean i think in by dutt's definition when he's talking about social democrats in europe he means anybody that's not 
forming a revolutionary party yeah. whose yeah. goal is the actual takeover of the state and the redistribution right. of productive forces. Yeah, because anything it, less than that is social yeah. democracy, basically. Yeah. Because if you accept the premise that, you know, you cannot really change the fundamental modes of production unless there is like an actual you, you, unless you take it right you can't legislate your way out of it right mm -hmm. um or you can't vote your way into it then you know building a revolutionary like party usually probably that coincides with preparing for armed struggle is the only way and any, anything other than that is social democracy whether you call yourself a socialist or not mm -hmm. and the thing is, is you know if you take a country like germany at this time you know, coming out of the war, Germany is paying massive reparations to France. Uh, those reparations are required by the French state and French capital to keep the French economy functioning. Mm -hmm. um, Germany, of course, can't pay the reparations, which is also a problem, right? Uh, you know, and the solution that ends up coming out of this is that the United States steps in as now the world's international creditor, right? Essentially upstaging Britain. Um, the United States steps in with the Dawes plan in, I believe, 1924. And essentially, after there's been a lot of, you know, destabilizing revolutionary activity in Germany, the United States stabilizes the social democratic government in Germany at the time uh, by essentially to becoming the new creditor, right? And saying, actually, we'll buy up your war debt and you give it to us. You know, now mm -hmm. you pay us, right? And the thing is, is like, on the one hand, for the government at the time well this is good because our traditional enemy the french are no longer so pissed off at us about these payments right of course now we owe a lot of money to a, a new and worse <laughs> you know? this is like any episode of sopranos where you see some guy who just owes money to like very like like tries to pay off one debt by trying to borrow from like another member of the family right like this is basically what's happening, right? And of course, now Germany's being squeezed by an even more powerful country who's trying to like take this money, right? Uh, leading to a you know a spiral of hyperinflation and things like that. Which hilariously, by the way, for the U.S., uh, who you know didn't vote for the League of Nations because they're like, well, we don't want the Europeans having a check on anything that we do by essentially doing the Dolls Plan. Like the U.S. now had a check on everything the Europeans did very clever yeah. <laughs> very <laughs> clever imperialism there um probably explains why they didn't vote for the uh, league of nations by the way but in doing this essentially the social democratic party in charge in germany or social democrats in germany they didn't have a lot of ability to maneuver within the constraints that they were facing right you know u.s you know bankers on one side demanding payment right an inability to do like large types of production and stuff like that were banned because of the Versailles treaty. Uh, they were cut off from important mining districts inside what had previously been Germany's national borders. All these kind of things meant that minus an actual revolution, they were pretty hemmed in, which meant that as the crises got worse and worse, all they could do was just oversee the collapse into the crisis, which Unless you're a committed fucking communist or something like that, which there were less and less of in Germany because they kept getting killed. Yeah. How how do you interpret that other than, well, the social democrats have failed, like that this doesn't work. Yeah. 
you know? No, it's very natural to come to, I mean, what other conclusion do you come to unless you yeah. are, like, a committed communist, right? Like, that you have to yeah. be like, yeah, obviously these guys fucking failed. And that just delegitimizes, even it delegitimizes the communists, too, because they're just yeah. looked at as the broader left, right? So yeah, the left failed. You're being told by conservatives this whole time that the Social Democrats in office are communists, right? Yeah, they're sleeper communists who are, like, you know, Trojan-horsing yeah. their way in, yeah. And by the way, I mean, to give, you know, and some of this maybe sounds like, you know, the, for all those leftists who just love to like pick nits about like every faction in Germany at the time and like, oh, but <laughs> like they're not real kind of whatever. Let me give you a modern example. I've had not one, but multiple conversations with people where the issue of communism will come up. And these are like just normal everyday Americans, right? These are about people who are spending a whole lot of time like thinking about the inner workings of history or politics. Uh, talking about communism, and they'll just say, but we tried that under Obama and it didn't work. <laughs> And you could say that's absurd, but I point you back to just 10 minutes prior in this episode, we talked about the power of ideology, the power of propaganda, yes. right? That when there's no opposing viewpoint, you can put these kind of ideas into people's heads. And what ends up happening in Germany is that opposing viewpoint that existed in, say, 1918, 1919 in Germany is increasingly delegitimized and increasingly thinned out as far as its numbers. Um, we tried Sharia law and it didn't work. Obviously, yeah. we did it for eight years. Exactly right. We, you know, we, we had have... our first LGBTQIA plus president. <laughs> 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 you know, although as we discussed in our our uh, listener question show, that was he Obama. Well, I do believe he was LGBTQIA plus. <laughs> <laughs> he was not the first. So we gotta we gotta be clear. Yes, on that. yeah, very they're, clear. They're, not the first. There have been gay presidents. The most, just the most recent. <laughs> yeah, just the most recent. <laughs> um first in the cold war that would that yeah, would be yeah. the, uh, <laughs> but yeah so these outside constrictions are really like constraining where germany can go the fact that the social democrats oversaw this collapse delegitimizes them and you end up in a perfect situation by 1932 where a right-wing party offering what appears to be a revolutionary new viewpoint on how the world works can really step into that void and as the nazis proved you know they only ever won i think at the height of their electoral success they got like 33 percent of the vote yeah uh, and then quickly lost that that majority uh this majority in a parliamentary system by the way but quickly lost that majority in the next election but the thing is is that like once the door was cracked open for them that's all you need. That was that was it, right? Capital found their champion. They all lined up behind the Nazis. The Nazis then proceeded to systematically murder everybody on the left, uh, which gives you a sign of who they actually thought their enemies were. Mm -hmm. And then the the story goes, you know, the story we all know and love goes from there. Right. Yep. And that is sort of what's happening in Europe, right? <laughs> the atavistic demons are coming alive. Yeah. What's interesting is in the United States, despite some best efforts, it doesn't quite go that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think there's some reasons why. I'd be I'd be curious, Munya, like if you if you had to throw out a reason why 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 well, do you think that maybe it, it went a little differently? To me, 
I think the real big difference between the U.S. and Europe, who were dealing with the same economic system at the time. Same economic crisis, yeah. Same economic crisis at the time, too, when we're talking about agriculture and, you know, obviously the Great Depression hit the U.S. pretty hard. And of course, as if you could see on other episodes, the U.S. is no short of, uh, especially as ruling class, being very into the idea of fascism, right? Like the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the American idea, bosses like, love Mussolini. They cannot love be said Mussolini. Enough. They love yeah. the man. I mean, like loved him. But I think really, so despite all of the similarities, you know, between like uh, Western Europe and the U.S., the biggest thing is that is the context of the war, right? And I think where the U.S. was in World War One, um, the where the U.S. is right now, where the U.S. is in all of history, it is far away from where all of these European countries really are, right? And that like basically isolation, you know, or pseudo isolation, right? Like from uh, Europe, where World War One was never fought in the U.S. There was no bombs dropped in New York, right? There was no mm-hmm. bombs like you know, like. DC wasn't like getting like yeah, bombed every second, shelled. you know. <laughs> artil- yeah, exactly, right. Like you know, the Europe was really just like turned into rubble from like World War One, right? And then of course, uh, you know, World War Two, like then thereafter, like later. But I mean, like this is coming out of the ashes of World War One when we're in the Depression, and I think that the really big difference is is that. The actual just geography of America, the idea that it can just like kind of be on its own, not have to deal with the inner workings of having countries right next to each other, which when contradictions of capitalism rise enough, you have to like bomb the shit out of each other. That never happens on like, you know, its home base. And I think that is kind of where the difference between where people were in Europe, where a lot of people's homes were being burned, like there's communities were completely destroyed. Um you know, I think that the conditions of the working people of Europe and the uh, experience that when crisis arises, they would have to actually fight in their home territory, right? The imperial powers would have to fight each other, essentially. The U.S. could just kind of like swoop in after they beat the shit out of each other and just like, you know, like clean house, right? And so I think that there is definitely a geographic factor when looking at why the U.S. uh, and the U.S. people reacted a lot differently than the people of Europe, right? Um, Mm. This experience of war and like going through it, even if you're not a soldier, I think to me uh, really is informative and like, you know, shows reaction on which way you would go or what actually seems uh, Mm. appealing. It creates certain conditions. So, I mean, that's that's what I would go with. Yeah, I mean, the geographical thing is super critical and we don't want to get all like Jared Diamond, geographical determinists. But the U.S. lucked into the best geography that you could possibly have if you want to be an imperial power in modern capitalism. Two giant moats separate it from its nearest, you know, most important imperial rivals in the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, right? It has enormous landmass that has some of the most fertile land on the fucking planet. And being pitted between sort of Europe and Asia, it can pivot to each side very easily when it comes to markets and things like that, right? So just totally blessed by geography. But as you said, another nice part about that is you don't have to fight wars on your soil, right? And you very importantly get to choose when you enter those wars, which the U.S. for the U.S. is always at the last possible minute, just 
early enough that you can then demand concessions when the war is over from everybody but not so early that you have to do too much actual work you know Mm -hmm. and that's really critical in again to piggyback another point you made that means that you know while a lot of u.s soldiers went and fought world war one and why it was not a good experience for probably any of them the psychological impact it had on the population was different yes you know returning soldiers from germany or to germany returning soldiers to france returning soldiers to britain do form a pretty ripe social base to mobilize if you want to form a uh violent fascist street movement right and Mm -hmm. of course you know the brown shirts are a lot of world war one vets right you know silver shirts in italy are world war one vets and similarly in the united states world war one vets are mobilized against the labor movement and you know are they try to mobilize them in a similar fashion they just don't have the numbers they don't get yeah. the numbers they don't have right. the they're not as deeply broken i think as a lot of the people were in europe or um it just it never quite is able to come together in that same way so the street forces are a little differently. The U.S. has got to rely on what it's always relied on, which is cops. As we know, nothing to shake a stick at. But yeah, another important difference is the general population itself and where the labor movement was. Mm. Again, mm. Germany being close to its rival in France, it really constrains a lot of what they can do, right? And also the, just the terms of the uh, Versailles Treaty and stuff like that really uh, constrains a lot of what they can do. The U.S. has none of those constraints, uh also that being close to your you know recent political and war rival or enemy allows you to mobilize your working class population in a way that the u.s really can't with its own working class population so the working class in the united states it simply is not mobilized against its own interests at exactly the same level in exactly the same way the american labor movement for all of its silly faults all of its dumb problems by 1932 is in a much better situation than the german labor movement is than the french labor movement is than the english labor movement is like the american labor movement is ascending where all those other ones are descending usually about six feet down into some fucking dirt you know yeah right and that is a critical thing because what we'd said earlier about fascism is when capitalism is in crisis, people are looking for some explanation of why the world is the way it is, right? Why things happen, all that kind of stuff. They're looking for a worldview. In a lot of these countries, there's nobody left to provide that worldview by the time the 1930s hit and we hit the golden age of fascism, right? Yeah. In the United States. Yeah, because liberalism is delegitimized and social democracy yeah. is delegitimized. That opens yeah. up the door. That's how fascism and- actually breeds. Yeah, and in, in places like Germany and stuff, in World one, like the traditional monarchist conservatives are delegitimized as well, right? Yes, so, yes. you know, it doesn't mean that conservatism is delegitimized. It just means that you're not going to put like a baron in charge of anything, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like, I mean, there could have been a world where you return to monarchy, but the thing is, is like, you know, because the Germans kept a Kaiser all the way up to the war, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> They're delegitimized pretty, too. Yeah, yeah, the monarchy is delegitimized, right? Yeah. And so in the United States, that di- wasn't dealing with those problems that had an ascendant labor movement, people were given options. There's a great quote from Nemchansky where they asked him one time, like, 
you know, what was the difference between like 2010, 2011 versus the 1930s. And because Chomsky is approximately 300 years old, he of course <laughs> has memories of the 1930s. That like is he was old insane. enough that he that remembers the depression. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, but he had this interesting take where he was saying, you know, well, objectively his family in New York city was worse off and lots of people obviously were worse off in the great depression than they are in the after the economic crash in 2009 the difference was is that they had hope right they had organizations they believed in they had community they were a part of chomsky won't say it because of his own sort of cold war anti-communism but yeah. then the communist party that was yes. there and ascendant Huge. that gave you a vision of the future that you could believe that was something different you know that you could believe in right whereas by 2010 in the united states None of that existed anymore. And so he's like, even though people's situation is objectively not as bad, subjectively, it's much worse. Like yeah, people right. are hopeless. They're in much worse spots. And that because of that, it feels like something bad is on the horizon, right? Essentially, mm -hmm. right? You know, and in order for fascism to come into being, there would have to have not been a vital left to push back against it. And the United States had a vital left to push back against it. One that, as we talked about in the last episode, I think was vital enough that it forced, you know, capital to produce a character in the form of Franklin Roosevelt to negotiate between, you know, capital's most base instincts and this working class movement to create yeah. the New Deal. Yeah, that's what an actual strong left looks like. Like, you don't try to even make comparisons to what a strong left kind of looks like it, like today that you've seen. It's just it, a lot of the stuff feels like the same world, but the state of the left in the 1930s, and especially in the U.S., just worlds beyond what what it is now. You know? Yeah. And we'll get we're gonna get to why why that is later. Don't worry. But like, you know. <laughs> yeah. You can't compare the two. Yeah, we didn't just all forget how to be cool. So like, yeah, yeah, know, exactly. It, it's it's brought about right. Yeah. Um. So we end up with a situation where it's the unique social development of individual countries that put them in the spots they're in at any given moment. And for the United States, it is its geographical isolation and safety with regard to its imperial rivals. It's the state of its working class. It's the fact that American capital is not quite as fucking decrepit and decayed as, you know, it is in <laughs> Europe. All those things are sort of coming together to give a slightly different situation but again, you know, we had to push back at the idea that all of this was preordained. As we talked about in the last episode, there are plenty in the American capitalist class who wanted it to look like Mussolini's Italy. And, yeah. you know, a few things go a different way. That's what you're looking at, right? Yep. And, and I think that's important. By the way, Grant has this great quote, and he's talking about World War II here, but I think he actually used it for the whole of the 1930s. That I think shows the different place that American workers were at, which he has this quote where he says, you know, the fight against fascism, many thought, had to be about more than restoring an ideal of freedom as freedom from restraint, right? That's huge. Because, like, the a, whole this whole series we've been talking about, like, basically the American ideology, being that freedom is the freedom from restraint. Yeah. Pure individualism, right? Pure, like, raw individualism. And, you know, I think for that, on a fundamental level, against the wishes of the ruling class you know people in the u.s seeing the fight of fascism to be that right just fighting for more than just the american ideology but actually entering the social arena of fighting for actual social rights 
right? Yeah. Like fighting for material rights and gains and which crosses racial lines, gender lines, and class lines, it, amongst other things, too. Uh, that's that's like a fundamental shift, I think, in how like, you know, the labor is thinking about themselves, is thinking about what's possible in the U.S. Because for mm. sure, it didn't come out of nowhere that people wanted this to happen. Um, but for it to be tangible and actually believe in it on a, on a mass scale, like I think labor did back then, is a significant shift in the U.S. and the U.S. way of thinking and like shows that the grip of control uh, was slipping on, yeah. uh, you know, the people of the U.S. Yeah, and the thing is, is that, you know, Granted, of course, he's talking about World War II and this thing, but I think we can extend it to the 1930s that basically, you know, labor organizers, labor movements, they weren't saying like, oh, yeah, we're going to go into the street and have this huge strike in order to, you know, and a lot of times they're having strikes for their own individual labor gains, but sometimes they would even have strikes and stuff to support various New Deal programs and things like that. But the point is, they weren't going out there doing that in order to continue living in the same way that they had been living right yes. that was because of the class of liberalism that was an unacceptable outcome for a lot of people for an enormous mass of people and instead of a you know demanding a ad you know a smiting of their enemies which is what happens in europe what they're demanding is an uplifting of the social base yeah and one of the perfect examples of this is what's called the double v day which was black soldiers from the United States who had fought in World War II, they started talking about, there was this whole thing about the V for victory. So like the peace sign that you see now, they used to be called the V for victory, right? And you put it up for, you know, the victory against fascism. And black soldiers would start talking about the double V, right? Double V day, right? Is that victory against fascism abroad, victory against fascism at home, right? You know, yeah, the destruction of the Jim Crow South, right? Yeah, all that stuff becomes really unacceptable. And by the way, not a surprise then that the American civil rights movement all of a sudden goes into hyper gear the second the war is over, right? Yes, yes. You know, it's all these guys coming back. They've been politicized throughout the 1930s, right? Through the campaign, you know, against the Scottsboro Boys, you know, trial, right? You know, the, the farce that was that trial. Uh, the organizing campaigns in the South, the labor organizing campaigns, right? Then the war itself and the fact that the Communist Party was given briefly a bit of a free hand to essentially advertise the war as a war against fascism, you know? Uh, all that, and then going to Europe and seeing fascism, right? Also going to Europe and uh, seeing people who weren't from a Jim Crow world and how they acted towards you and being like, oh, it's actually not natural that white people treat us the way they do yeah, yeah. in Alabama, <laughs> right? You know, all of that was brought back and was put into this idea of a sort of amorphous but social struggle to have a different conception of what the country is and how it functions. And I think that is going to explain what happens in the United States vis-a-vis -vis fascism in the 1930s. Uh, it's also going to explain in future episodes the massive campaign to destroy that very uh, yeah. project, you yeah. know, and why that was so important. So I just kind of want to leave on and uh, kind of start to wrap this up. I do want to talk about Dutt and what he says fascism is, because I do think it's it's sort of important. And Mooney, do you want to read this this definition? That, yeah. It's sort of one of the short definitions he gives of fascism right here, but I think it's important. 
Fascism, in fact, is no peculiar independent doctrine and system arising in opposition to existing capitalist society. Fascism, on the contrary, is the most complete and consistent working out in certain conditions of extreme decay of the most typical tendencies and policies of modern capitalism. And so I think this is a very critical and important definition because I think the tendency has always been to see fascism in Europe as some sort of one, something that only exists in Germany and Italy and also some sort of bizarre aberration. Uh, It's just those Europeans going nuts out there. And I hope that through this discussion that we've had today and through the episodes leading up to this, if you all have been following all the ending the myth episodes, which you should be go back to episode one. If if not, go back it's uh it's a good time i think that you can only come to the conclusion that fascism is not something separate and different than capitalism fascism is just capitalism <laughs> with a you know less of a mask on right you know yeah. the, the old uh cpusa cartoon used to be a uh wolf with a mask and the happy face mask is democracy and then it pulls it off and it's fascism and the wolf <laughs> is capitalism right so that was the ben garrison cartoon yeah. of the cpusa right yeah but it's true like it used to be know, a country a proper country exactly <laughs> <laughs> but as dutt goes through his book i mean the one thing he points out is that the actual sort of ruling base of every one of these countries never changes the same industrialists are in charge. The crooks are still calling shots in Germany, right? And all this yeah. kind of stuff. But as the economic crisis grows, their ability to put on the happy face diminishes. Yeah. You know, I think it's unavoidable that we sort of finish out talking about the modern period. Mm-hmm. That discussion of social democratic parties or organizations in Europe in particular. I mean, we would be derelict if we didn't bring up Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> you know, he's a nice guy. He likes cats. I like that. Yeah. Mechanical Freak, by the way, has generally had the correct opinion, which the Democratic Party would never allow Bernie Sanders to be a candidate for the Democratic Party, which I do think is true. But if we put on our fantasy mind palace hat, and say that he he gets through the 2020 primaries. Something that was never mm-hmm. going to be allowed to happen, but we'll say he does. Yes. Yeah. That, that's an important caveat, because I don't want people to then give me strategy of how he could do it, because yeah. you're, you're only kidding no. yourself, buddy. No, no, no. <laughs> but he then somehow gets elected president, right? Which I think there's a lot of caveats to that, too, but somehow gets elected president. Think about what Dutt said about what you know discredited social democracy in Europe being forced to oversee a crisis which you're hemmed in on all sides and cannot do anything about. What is that other than what's happening right now? Like if Bernie was in charge of what of this COVID disaster, mm-hmm. realistically, given his ability as president, given the strength of, you know, our idiot Congress, <laughs> given the strength of the wizards that we've appointed to uh, the these judges on the Supreme Court, yeah. given the strength of bureaucratic institutions in the United States who actually do make and carry out all the policy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, behind closed doors, and given the strength of American capital and its desire to not actually solve this crisis in any real way, what could Bernie have actually done about COVID-19? 
given his real politics, if we assume he's not Lenin. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, a Bernie yeah, right. of <laughs> And I think arguably you would just get a less funny version of the Biden presidency. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure like there could be like some because the bar is so low and Biden literally hasn't done like anything. His administration yeah. is like <laughs> deliberately not doing like literally anything. Um, it should be, yeah, it should be worth saying doing anything at all at this point would be would be um, more than what we're yeah. getting. And I think that we would get more than nothing. But I think that it would show that, you know, what would it look like if the fundamentals of COVID could not be solved, right? Like all of those structures and institutions probably would not allow, uh, you know, Bernie himself, who we haven't even like acknowledged like explicitly that uh, his own party uh, being the Democrats would be directly opposed. And yeah. probably a lot of them would like defect into the Republican party, right? That would happen. But even that aside, put that aside because I don't want you to think that it wouldn't happen if it wasn't like, let's say like, the Dems are neutral or positive on Bernie's presidency. What would ultimately come about, I think, is that like, sure, I think he can make the process of dealing with COVID a little more humane. But I think COVID itself would still be there. This crisis that we're facing where uh, capital is not allowing COVID to end because that implies that there will be a lot of intervention into private capital probably like nationalization of whole industries, right? If we like really realistically want to solve it, we'd have to halt commerce. We'd have to halt, mm -hmm. you know, private ownership of certain key industries. It takes a great deal of power to have that happen. And as you've seen, even if Bernie attempts to, which, you know, he might, may or may not, if he does, I mean, there's a ton of systematic structures that have been built up over the centuries of the US that are designed to fundamentally prevent something like that happening. Yeah. So if Bernie runs on basically this uh, promise, right, of social democracy, essentially, and we're left with uh, struggling with COVID in ways that feels just like perpetual and never ending, that, especially because it's like not the status quo of US politics, right, and it's not something that we're used to, we're taking a gamble in the public eyes with something that seems like more radical, right? And it ends up being that outcome even remotely close to what we're experiencing now, that would delegitimize, in my argument, it would delegitimize the left entirely uh, to the point where, where else does that lead you? We're already a mm. fascistic country, uh, yeah. just like, you know, um, and now that liberalism is delegitimized, the left is just really nowhere to be seen. But now if they ascended to those heights and now the left is delegitimized through Bernie Sanders, and if it wasn't Bernie, if it was any other social democratic president same thing right bernie is just the guy who was running that just leaves the door open for a very more explicit turn beyond aesthetics into a third way which is fascism yeah and i mean i i think the real life example was the obama administration coming in in the middle of a crisis with you know record high approval a lot of enthusiasm things like that and you know, it's impossible to separate Obama's handling, the Obama administration's overseeing of the 2009 crisis and say like Donald Trump getting elected. I mean, Obama essentially did as much as anybody to delegitimize both the Democratic Party and the liberal project, right? Exactly. And the thing is, is that's not to say that, oh, 
Obama made the bad choices or whatever. I just don't think he had any real choices. No, not to say no. he would have made good ones even if he could. But yeah. the thing is, is that that's giving just too much credit to an institution that doesn't actually have a ton of power when it comes to the economic sphere. I mean, in order to resolve COVID, which is why it will never be resolved in this country or why this crisis is going to continue to drag out, you would have to one fundamentally tear apart and recreate our entire medical infrastructure which yep. nobody wants to do just get that idea right the fuck out of your head like there's probably 10 people in all of congress who'd be willing to back that <laughs> yeah. yeah so the other thing you'd have to do is you'd have to impinge step on question the fundamental rights of property that rule this country by yes telling businesses that you can't rule over your workers with an iron fist you know that the state can tell you what to do right yeah you do not have freedom from restraint and this is the thing that grandin has been talking about this is the struggle in the united states that's like dragging the united states you know into uh this uh future hellscape is so long as the primary concept of freedom in this country is freedom from restraint ideologically there is no going any other direction you can't do a collective project you cannot believe in social rights or anything like that and that would have been at the core of any sort of bernie campaign i mean i think of a bernie presidency would be watching that fall apart of course if all that failed and uh, bernie was a uh you know, transformational leader. I mean, they just shoot him. So that would be, yeah. by the way, I will say when Obama got elected, I remember people in Chicago telling me specifically black residents in Chicago uh, or telling me that they didn't think he would live through the first year. Mm -hmm. They were all sure he would be assassinated within a year. Now, I think that they were maybe uh, buying into his transformational power a little more than they <laughs> should have. Every one of them, by the way, let's just say by 2012, had a very different view of the Democratic Party and Obama by that point, um, yeah. speaking to the delegitimizing. But, uh, <laughs> you know, to give you an idea of, of people's sort of feelings that way. But yeah, search, um, search, uh, search Obama Flint um if you want to yeah. learn more about like if you want to see what delegitimizing looks like in real time uh, look at just look how he handled flint yeah that drinking the water at the in flint video that essentially is what the social democrats were forced to do in the 1920s yeah. and yeah. 30s, which is why they collapsed right yeah, is that exactly unlike in america where nobody cares about anything uh in europe they did care about that shit and that's why they collapsed yeah well on that note let's go ahead we'll close this discussion out and we just want to leave you with this final passage from Dutt on capitalism's ability to endure even in the midst of crisis for all of those who feel that, well, if it just gets bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those accelerationists out there, uh, brace yourself. <laughs> A well-known statement of Lenin in 1920 with reference to the post-war crisis gave warning against the illusion that there is absolutely no way out for capitalism. On the contrary, there are no absolutely hopeless situations. The meaning of this statement is often misunderstood, because it is commonly quoted out of its context. Lenin was in fact giving a warning against, quote, two widespread errors. First, the error of the bourgeois economists, who fail to see the basic character of the crisis and regard it as a temporary unsettlement. And second, the error of the passive revolutionists, who expect an automatic collapse of capitalism. 
against the latter, he pointed out that the proof of the collapse of capitalism can only be not any abstract logical demonstration, but the successful action of the proletariat in overthrowing it. Until then, capitalism remains in power, drags on somehow, finds its own way out each time, no matter what disturbances it passes through. In other words, capitalism does not escape from the general crisis into which it has fallen since 1914, and in which is inevitable in the present stage of conflict between the forces of production and existing relations of capitalist property ownership, it only passes from one stage of crisis to another. There is no question of temporary unsettlement, but capitalism does not finally fall until the proletariat overthrows it. Very good. And so next week, we're going to have a very special guest. We're going to be talking World War II. We're going to be talking Harry Truman. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking Henry Wallace. Uh, yeah. You know, and we'll be talking how capitalism ultimately resolves the crisis of overproduction, yeah. <laughs> um, which is with a lot of bombs. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's one way to destroy uh, production, and that sometimes you shut a factory down, sometimes you drop a thousand pound bomb on top <laughs> yeah, of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll see you all next week. Bye. The money's not to be on the cows, not to be It's freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive government. It's free real estate. dice que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos junto a activistas aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de
Space.